You're listening to Drisha Vechakira, the Drisha Chavruta podcast. Welcome to our Beit Midrash. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Drisha's Chavruta podcast. I'm Dvorah Steinmetz, and my Chavrutas are Samuel Liebens, Tzvi Blanchard. So, the text that we uh, have in front of us today is uh, a text from uh, the Talmud tractate Baba Bacha, and um, we'll we'll start with a brief line from the Mishnah. The Mishnah talks about neighbors whose houses uh, share a courtyard. And the Mishnah says, Kofinoto livnot beit shar videlet lechatzer. That the neighbors can compel one another to contribute toward building a beit shar, a gatehouse, um, and a door for the courtyard. Now, in reference to that text from the Mishnah, the Gemara raises a question. The Gemara says, Is that to say, the Mishnah's um, norm that one can compel uh, one's neighbor to contribute toward building a gatehouse, is that to suggest that building a gatehouse is a good thing? But after all, we know that there was a certain chassid, a certain particularly pious person, um, whom, who was regularly visited by Eliyahu, by Elijah the prophet, who would um, come and uh, talk with him on a regular basis. And at one point in time, this chassid uh, built a gatehouse, and Eliyahu no longer came to converse with him. So that story about the chassid suggests that, in fact, it's not a very good thing at all to build a gatehouse. So the Gemara brings the story of the Hasid to raise a question about the Mishnah. Is it a good thing to build a gatehouse, as the Mishnah seems to suggest, or is it in fact not a good thing to build a gatehouse? The Gemara goes on to try to offer several, re- several possible resolutions uh, to this contradiction, but I thought we would stop at this point and see what we, what we all see in this text. Sam, Svi? There are two things that strike me right away. The Mishnah has a kind of strong legal basis. It has to do with people's responsibilities to each other. They live together. They have responsibilities to each other. And they have the capacity to force each other to do things. In other words, if you read the Mishnah before you get to the visits of Elio, you're working in the world of law and the world of responsibilities that people who live together in the same kind of courtyard and what that's like. Then all of a sudden, when I moved into the, to the Gemara, I thought to myself, of course, the question is a good question. It does imply that what that it's that's an improvement to build this kind of 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 a of a, of a shar of a, of a gate, and then into the conversation comes some kind of supernatural being. All of a sudden, forget uh, how law seems ordinarily to operate independent of supernatural things. All of a sudden, we have an intersection from a transcendent transcendent plane that says yes to some things and no to others, good to some things and bad to others, and it turns out. I was sort of shocked. All of a sudden, we're, why are we deciding what Eliyahu does? Why are we deciding law based on what Eliyahu does? Yes, it's interesting because it, it, it's traditionally you'd think there are two types of rabbinic literature, broadly speaking. You have the halachic and you have the agadic. The halachic literature is literature dealing with legal uh, rulings. It's a, it's a legislative project. And the agadator is folklore, stories and tales. And here, uh, those, those two genres seem to intersect. And to bring a halachic question from, from this story seems, you know, uh, peculiar. And also we could ask, um, 
to what extent is the behaviour of, of a pious person, a chassid, supposed to be supposed to be normative? Right. So it's inconsistent with with super piety, with with a high level of piety, to be building a gatehouse for reasons we should discuss. Um, but the Mishnah doesn't normally address itself to the super pious. It's addressing itself to everybody. So let's follow along on that at that point for a minute, because that's what struck me as well, um, that the Gemara's question is based on the behavior of a Hasid, um, and even if it's the case that Eliyahu would no longer uh, hang around this Hasid for doing something, that, that doesn't necessarily seem to mean um, that this behavior, meaning desisting from building a gay house, would be behavior that's expected from, from everybody. So one of the avenues that I think it might be interesting to, to look at is um, why is it a story about a Hasid that's being brought here? What is being introduced uh, by bringing in the Hasid? Um, so that, that's that's one one uh, place I think we might want to go. Well, what occurs but, to you? Does stuff that's up here? Well, but before we get there, I, th- I think we have to move back for a second because we didn't really talk about what would the problem be with building a right. gatehouse at all. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, there's why do we want a gatehouse such that why would a gatehouse be a good thing such that the Mishnah suggests that one might compel one's neighbors to contribute toward building one? And why do we imagine that Eliyahu um, stopped talking to a person who built a gatehouse? Whether or not we see the Hasid is representing the norm or not, which we mm. can get to. But what is it actually about the gatehouse? So um, I, think, I think as a starting point, we can, um, we can take Rashi's interpretation here, which seems to be shared by uh, most, uh, most, if not all, of the commentaries. Um, Rashi says that the, the problem with the gatehouse, such that Eliyahu stopped talking to the person who built one, um, is, is, because when you build a gatehouse, that um, that interrupts, right, that that sets a barrier um, in the face of poor people who are calling out so that their voice cannot be heard. Now, there's Rashi is suggesting um, that, and whether or not this is why you built a gatehouse is an mm-hmm. interesting question. Mm-hmm. But certainly, that one of the consequences of building a gatehouse is that it keeps the people from inside, right, the people who live in the homes um, that. Uh, enter into this, lead into this courtyard, um, are end up being protected, end up having a barrier um, from being able to hear the call, right, the cry of the poor person in, in who, the is coming, who is coming, presumably to ask for food or to ask for support. In the Mishnah, that's a positive thing from Rashi's point of view. The Mishnah wants to do it. The reason offered is Marchiket Shutarabim, right? Well, in the Mishnah, I don't want people looking in at me where I am. I keep this will block the, the people that are in the public domain from peering in and seeing what I'm doing. I want my privacy. Yeah, so, so, but that that so we have two. Uh, um, Devar is introducing two questions to ask about the gatehouse. One is why is it a positive thing, and two is why is it a negative thing? Because clearly the Mishnah thinks it's a positive thing exactly. to the extent that that you can force people, you compel your neighbours to to contribute to its construction. But the Gemara uh, is is introducing a negative note because um, Elijah the prophet no longer wants to visit somebody who constructs one. And it seems like Rashi's giving us an answer to both questions. Mm-hmm. The Mishnah is suggesting that um, building a gatehouse is a good thing because privacy is a good thing. You don't want peering eyes to be able to see into your. It reminds me of of um, the classical commentaries on Bilam 
on on Balaam's blessing to the Jewish people when he's how goodly are thy tents and the classical commentaries say they were built in such a way that nobody's windows or doors peered into anybody else's they protected their privacy but Rashi is also saying that the negative consequence of building a gatehouse is that it, it, it could have the consequence of shutting out the cries of the poor people um, and I wonder, uh, Dvorah suggests that this is the consensus position and that se- seems right to me from my, from my cursory knowledge of the commentaries on this uh, on this text, but one, one wonders if there's not another um, explanation to what might be bad about uh, building a gatehouse. Is the problem that you're shutting out the cries of of people from the outside or is the problem that you're shutting yourself in now obviously they're they're two sides of the same coin but Rashi seems to be focusing on the shutting out of voices mm-hmm. we could have imagined a commentary that would focus on the shutting oneself in shutting oneself in from what what, what, what do you have from, maybe from 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 something similar from identifying with the people outside mm-hmm. of your house from civic duty from community yeah yeah so I think that's very interesting because notice that Rashi doesn't suggest that the problem with the gatehouse is that poor people can't enter your courtyard there's no suggestion that mm. these poor people are necessarily trying to enter what mm. they're trying to do is stand outside according to Rashi's interpretation, stand outside and have their voice heard. Mm-hmm. Right? So according to Rashi, the problem with the gatehouse is that, to use your language then, that it shuts you in from even being aware mm. of the needs mm. of the outside. And that, that I think, is, is, you know, is a very interesting thing. It's not suggesting that necessarily the poor person has, has the right uh, to enter into your private domain, but it is suggesting that there's something deeply problematic with shutting yourself in to the degree that you can't even become aware that the poor person mm. can't make him or herself uh, come to your attention even through their voice permeating that, mm. that, that barrier that you've put up. With every liminal area, though, you have a question as to who controls access. Okay, I mean, if you think that Hezek Riyashmi has, there are other Talmudic passages in which if someone looks at you and you don't want to be looked at, it, it limits what you can do. Hezek is, is, is the name for a type of damage in, in Jewish law concerning pri- uh, evasion of privacy. Um, right, so if somebody, and it, it, it's a disputed issue, but it's considered, the, we probably, who controls access? If you have no, if you have a gate, then you can wrestle with the question, how much is too much shutting myself in, and how much is, is enough protecting my right to have some privacy for myself and not be damaged by being looked at. But if you have no gate, Okay, then the outside has, in, th- in theory, okay, can simply cross that, 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 that line and you've lost control over access to yourself. Now you think to yourself, wouldn't you like to have control over who has access to you under what circumstances? The risk, of course, is that you withdraw into yourself and, and don't reach out for others. But there's another risk, which is that you could be so vulnerable by allowing yourself to be, to be stopped on the street on everybody, everybody who wants to talk to you that only hachosid, only somebody who really didn't any longer care about anything except helping people in need, that person can say, I don't need that control over access. I want to see these poor people. So let's move on to look a bit at, at this um, chassid. Uh, you know, as we mentioned before, it is, it is you know, noteworthy that the Gemara story is not told about just any old person, but about right. a chassid. So I, I was thinking about this, and I, I wanted to bring in a, a couple of short texts which I think might be, might be relevant here. Um, one is... Uh, a, a brief text from Tractate Babakama, where um, the Gemara says that a person um, who's clearing his field of stones 
in order presumably to, to plow his field, um, should not throw those stones from his own private domain into uh, the public domain. And then the Gemara tells a story. Right? It once happened that a particular person was, in fact, uh, throwing the stones out of his own property into Rishut Harabim, into the public domain. So the Hasid said to this man who was throwing the stones, he says, you lowlife, why are you throwing stones from a property that is not yours to a property that is yours? So the person who was throwing the stones laughed at him because after all, that's not what happened. He was throwing the stones from his property to a property that is not his. But the story concludes, But after a while, uh, the person uh, had to sell his property, and he was walking in that very public domain, and he tripped on those very stones. And at that point he said, Actually, the Hasid spoke well when he said to me, why are you throwing the stones out um, from a property which is not yours to a property that is yours? What, what strikes me about this story is that the Hasid, um, well, let's say the, the, the person with the field, um, is like any of us. Right? The notion that there's a, a place which is mine and a place which is not mine. And I function within my domain, and I have responsibility with my, my own domain, but I really don't have any responsibility toward the place outside. That's not my place. And the Hasid says, who said that's true? Who said that the place in which you function, the place that you think is, is your possession, is yours? And who says that the place that you think is not yours is not yours? Maybe it's quite the opposite. And when I when I first saw this text, it, it reminded me of a famous text from uh, Avot, uh, Tractate Avot, um, where it talks about um, four different um, qualities in a person or four different kinds of people um, in regard to how they um, see property. Um, one of them is sheli shalach v'shalach shalach chasid. Right? The person who says what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours is a chasid. In other words, the chasid is a person who doesn't say what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. He doesn't right? erect a gatehouse. Right, the Hasid is the person who says, "What's mine is yours, and what's yours is yours. Everything's yours." Mm-hmm. Right, sort of and relating. There's no need to protect to what the border. There's, there's no, no, it, mine. There's no exactly. mine at all. Right, there is no exactly. border. <laughs> and what's interesting is right that earlier in that Mishnah, it talks about a regular person, right, a standard person. The Mishnah calls it mida benonit, kind of the average kind of person. And that person says, "Shali, shali, v'shalach, shalach. What's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. That's average. That's us." What, what has always struck me about this Mishnah is that the Mishnah, that part of the Mishnah doesn't end there. It says, the person who says, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, that's the average kind of person. But then the Mishnah goes on and says, v'yeshomrim zomidatstom. Right? There are those who say, this is the quality of Sodom. Right? This is what the Sodomites said. Now, there's a big jump there from kind of the Mishnah gaining our ascent. We sort of nod our heads when we read the first part of the Mishnah. Oh, yeah, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. Of course, we all know that. We learn that when we're infants, when we're toddlers. What's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. That's kind of 
That's the kind of average way for people to behave. But all of a sudden, but some say, actually, that's the way the sodomites behaved. Mm. And so it's, it strikes me that what's being set up here is, you know, moving from uh, it's kind of an average and normal and acceptable way to be. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. Um, and somebody who thinks differently is extraordinary, is a chassid, to moving toward the Mishnah saying, actually, no, if you think what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, right? if you're willing to set that clear boundary between yours and not yours, between mine and not mine, that's actually uh, the quality of stone. So I was also thinking of Saddam when I read this um, text in a, in, a different, um, in a different way, a different connection to Saddam. So... <clears throat> Um, one of my rabbis, Rabbi Shmuel Nachum, uh, once pointed out to me that the first time that the word door appears in the Bible um, is in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, um, in Saddam, all around um, the, the tent or the house of, of the dwelling place of Lot. So what happens is these, these angels come to visit uh, S- uh, Saddam in order to destroy it but also in order to save Lot and his family um, and when they visit Lot all of the townspeople gather around um, uh, the house they gather around the dwelling place of, of, of Lot and his family um, and they shouted to Lot and said to him where are the men who came to you tonight bring them out to us that we may be intimate with them Right? it says um that we should know them, otam, which which has carnal implications. It's um, it's a very threatening notion that we should know them. Um, lot. lot came out to them hapetach at the at the at the entrance of his house. sagar acharav, and he closed the door behind him. And this is the first time a door appears. Um, and as Rabbi Nachum tried to. Um, um, point out to me there's there's an idea in biblical commentary that the first time that a word appears in the bible um sets somehow the nature of the object the 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 um the symbolic resonance of the object so if the first time a door appears is in Saddam we're supposed to take note and we're supposed to say oh well maybe a door is something of a sodomite invention famously Abraham's tent Abraham and Sarah they, they had a tent with four openings, no doors. It was open on all sides because they wanted to bring in guests. He is the the archetypal Hasid, who doesn't see a strict border between what's his and what belongs to other people. He wants to invite those people out. Whereas in Saddam, they have these things called doors. And it's important that Lot has the door. You can't really blame him because he actually uses the door to protect, to protect his family, to protect his family and, 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 and his guests. And, his guests that's right? Right. and, and um, then what happens is um, the entire um, mob try to bash this door down, mm-hmm. right? And then the angels curse them with a type of blindness and, and protect the family by way again of the door. And in, in my teacher's inimicable style, he said, the entire story here hinges around, <laughs> around this door. <laughs> and, and it's true. The door, the door isn't just a bystander in this story. It's actually a very, very important character in this story. And I think it brings out perfectly the sense in which a door is both a good and a bad thing. On the one hand, if you didn't have a society like Saddam, 
you wouldn't have needed to have a door in the first place. On the other hand, if you live in a place like Saddam, you really need a door. It, you know, it's a legitimate need. Right. Although, you know, I mean, a couple of things came to mind as, as you were talking mm. about this. I mean, one is that Lot himself, at the beginning of this chapter, when, when, the, when the messengers uh, first arrive in stone, where do they find Lot? They find him, Yoshev Bishar Stone, right? He's sitting in the gate, which is interesting. It kind of reminds me of that uh, image that you were giving of Avram, you know, sitting at the entrance. at the entrance to the gate, right? So the entrance to his tent. So so Lot is 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 sitting uh, in the gate, and maybe later we'll, we'll talk about other mm. nuances of what that might mean to mm. sit in the gate. Uh, but it certainly means that he's the first person to see them, which yes. means that he can welcome them and usher them in the inside. The yes, he's yes. actually in the gate of the city. Which <coughs> so this is a, a kind of a gate that. Uh, in a sense that doesn't have a gatehouse to keep people out, right. but rather um, a resident of yes. the inside, right, sitting in the gate to see people and welcome them yes, in. Yes, which is quite Abrahamic. Um, <laughs> right, Because that's and, what and, and supposed to be yeah, doing. Right. Yes. Um, on, on the other hand, I, you know, I want to I wanna get back to what you said, but you know, if, you, if it weren't stone, you wouldn't need a door. Mm. And maybe that's not true, right? Uh, what, what Rashi seems to suggest, coming back to our Mishnah, um, is that you would always need a door uh, or something, right, some sort of a barrier, because there are things um, that make a home a home. Mm. And one of the things that makes a home a home um, is privacy. And one um, of the things that makes human dignity is control over access to oneself. Mm -hmm. So, right, so, so, so there's interesting. On the one hand, right, if a door is used in such a way that, that keeps people out, um, to the degree that you can't recognize the stranger who's passing by or the per poor person calling at the door, that's a problematic use of the door. On the other hand, right, a door affords people the possibility of creating a home, of having a family, of having privacy, of doing whatever we all are feeling, are feeling safe. Um, so, so that's that's a it's it's interesting. I just want to say, first of all, it's just interesting, Sam, how kind of your <laughs> your thinking about this um, door and stone, and 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 my thinking about this midat stone, right? This quality of stone, which makes this this kind of hard distinction between what's mine and what's yours, mm. kind of intersected. That's mm. that's so interesting that we mm. both kind of came to look at stone in that way. But the story also, I think, really raises the 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 tension that we then see in the rabbinic text between. Um, the necessity of a door or a gate or perhaps a gatehouse mm -hmm. um, and the problematic nature um, of a door that is impermeable um, to at least the cries yeah. of the person in need. I, I want to pick up on this, the, 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 the mission about what sodomites are like, so to speak. The person who says what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours um, denies that anybody else has a claim mm -hmm. on him or on her. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the classic Jewish conception of tzedakah, of giving to people who need, is that they do have a claim on our property from the outset. Mm -hmm. And the problem with, it, with the Beit Sha'ar, with this door or the gate that's there is, I need enough knowledge about what's going on outside in order that people that have a claim on me can be responded to. So, the, this person wants, the, 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 the sodomite wants n to give no access to his property, and that's why he's a me that stone. That's, he, the person is really wicked because he doesn't recognize he has responsibilities to people on the other side of the door. So there's going to be a point in tension in life where, on the one hand, like you said, on the one hand, my dignity and my ability to live my life and, and take care of other obligations means I have to have this kind of privacy and control. But on the other hand, I have responsibilities to people on the other side, okay? and if I block myself off, I won't reach them and be able to deal with them. 
So the, the, there's plenty of room to understand why the Gemara has a debate over the meaning of that Mishnah but and how it looks. Perhaps we've come full circle now and we're in a place where we can better um, answer the initial question that you and I were interested in, Svi, about, about um, the tension between the halachic text of the Mishnah and the Agadic text of the Gemara, um, the halachic text being addressed to everybody and, and the question from the, the Agadic text being about a pious person, not just anybody. And, and, and maybe one answer is this, um, and, and it slightly steps back from some of the things that you and Devar have been saying, which is to say that, yes, we do have a right to privacy, and privacy can be a good thing, but there is such a thing as the pious person, and the pious person maybe doesn't have, or he, to some extent, relinquishes his or her right to, um, to privacy, they demolish the boundaries between them and others to a very radical extent. And then the question of the mission becomes this, and then I, and I, I think I can see a way of saying, oh, I understand why the Hasid is really relevant here. Because the Mishnah is about forcing people. You live in a, an apartment block with a number of people, and the question is, can you force them to contribute to the building of this structure? Well, then the question is, can you force a chassid not to be a chassid? If he's, if he's, you know, if his chassidut, if his, if his piety becomes a burden to you because you want to build a gatehouse and it seems fair that everyone should contribute, but this person, can you force him not to be a chassid? Yeah, I would, I would actually see this a little bit differently. <clears throat> I, I think the, you know, the Gemara in a sense, the Gemara's question in a sense does a fast one on us. I mean, the Gemara kind of um, is 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 pretending and is asking us to to go along with the pretense that there's actually a contradiction between the story of the Hasid and the Mishnah. Now, what you could say from a quite logical perspective is, well, there's no contradiction at all, right? The Mishnah is talking about regular people, and the Gemara is talking about a Hasid, and Eliyahu only talks with certain kinds of people, and Eliyahu has certain expectations of those kinds of people, and a Hasid has different expectations set of him through mm-hmm. his norms of behavior than, than we do. So where's the contradiction? I, to my, my take on this is that when the Gemara um, introduces this as if it's actually a contradiction, that the Gemara is asking us to take a leap of imagination and to imagine that in some sense we are all being called upon to be a Hasid, or at least with respect to this, that we are all being asked uh, not necessarily not to have doors, well, certainly not to have doors, and not necessarily not to build gatehouses, but to make sure that no matter what kinds of structures we build, um, the cries of the poor person can still be heard. So I agree with you in part. <laughs> That's to say, um, I think what I was saying was to motivate the question of the Gemara. Mm-hmm. The question of the Gemara is, you know, how, how, how can it be that the, 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 the law of the Mishnah would force... Um, a person to comply with a law that would stop him from being, him or her from being pious. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think the question is, can we force pious people not to be pious, right? Um, However, the answer is, no, there's no contradiction. And in fact, we can all be pious in this respect. We should, when we erect gatehouses, we should do it in such a way that we we don't um, shut our ears off to the the cries of, of those outside. There's no conflict. But I would note... Oh... I'm just going to make a break and you can cut this out after. Okay. 
can, can you go back that. to okay it would be better if you did that before I said uh, what I said and okay. before you say what you, you just said right okay. so let's let's but I was gonna I, go, yeah, for go me back this and was do that say this kind of no for me this was a natural way is yeah. to say yeah. the following I know but we sort of already got to the next okay, stage but, but we want you first to say that and then we'll okay, get to the next stage so my, wor- my worry here is that the Talmud does um, provide a way of reconciling the tension through a series of suggestions Right, Lokasha, the Talmud says, there's no problem here. We can reconcile the story in the Mishnah. In one case, we're dealing with a, ba- uh, um, a, a gatehouse that's built somehow outside of the courtyard so that it's there to serve whatever purpose a gatehouse does. Maybe it's got like pigeonholes for people to leave post in or whatever and you can have a doorman there for added security but people can come in and and more importantly you can hear what's going on outside the problematic case the one that stopped Elijah from visiting the Hasid was where the gatehouse somehow blocked off the Chatser to the it was inside the courtyard and somehow blocked off those who lived inside from those who left outside or the Gemara then then the Gemara does another suggestion no maybe one case there was a door on the gatehouse and the other case there wasn't a door on the gatehouse as we get Delet this word with the biblical resonance of Saddam right or maybe Velokasha maybe there was a Delet in both cases but one had a um, a handle a latch and the other didn't have a latch. It seems to me, I mean, this is a kind of cynical reading, but it seems to me that at each stage of this Gemara, the authors of the Gemara get less ambitious as to how much of an ear you need to have open to those outside of you. Um, it's, as if, it's as if each answer gets less um, ambitious as to what it can demand from us. Oh, make sure... Make sure that the gatehouse is actually separate from the building and you really you can see the people walking by and hear the people. No, it's okay. You can have it there as long as you don't have a door. Oh, no, you can even have a door. But just make sure you have a lap. It just seems every time it's asking less of us. And, I, you know, um, that's well, a cynical like, reading. But no, I don't see it as a cynical reading. Um, but I see the entrance of Eliyahu as more than just... Um, Supernatural. I think Elio is also a messianic figure, a person in search of the idol society. Okay, so I think what happens is that the Gemara introduces us to the challenge of an ideal society in which there are no really are no doors, mm. and there don't need to be, and those problems have been solved. But then we don't live like that. So as you're right, I think they back off farther and farther into mm. a more livable response. Mm. We don't live in the days of the Messiah. Mm. So mm. we've got to somehow find a way to talk about this okay, so that... Granted, when the Messiah comes, we won't have to worry about building gatehouses. But we don't live when the Messiah comes. So each answer allows you more and more well to defend yourself against the non-Messianic or the non-ideal qualities of the life we're actually leading. That's interesting. I was seeing it a little bit, a little bit differently. And um, in response to what you were saying, Sam, you know, on the one hand, yes, each answer kind of pulls back further and further, eases the restrictions further and fur- further. So you can have a gated community with a doorman and a door as long as there's no lock, right? Uh, or, or as long as there's a buzzer, or as long as something. Um, so it becomes, in a sense, you know, less and less restrictive, more and more permissive in terms of enabling you to, to lock yourself in. Um, but but a, a somewhat different reading of that, I think, would be that um, the Gemara is setting an increasing um, set of challenges. In other words, 
we might think at first that if you have a gatehouse at all, uh, it's problematic. But let's imagine that you want to have a gatehouse, perhaps because of the reasons Svi just said. Let's use our imaginations to think how you could have a gatehouse and still not block out the poor person. Let's imagine how you could even have a gatehouse with a door on it and still not block out the poor person. Let's imagine how you could have an on and on and on. In other words, a slightly different way of seeing that is not so much that the Gemara is getting less and less restrictive, but the Gemara is asking us to imagine even in a world in which we have the needs for protection that we have, which was the ancient world and it's the modern world, um, even in a world in which, we, uh, in which we need and want and deserve the kinds of privacy that, that we want and need and deserve, how can we still make sure no matter what kind of house we live in, no matter what kind of community we live in, no matter what environment we live in, no matter how dangerous that environment might be, and no matter how much we have to lock ourselves in, how can we always make sure that we have not blocked out the cry of the poor person. That fits exactly with Elio as being actually a messianic figure because it's saying, listen, of course you hear that messianic voice and the temptation is to run in the other direction, but mm. the real answer is to say, how, how can do you incorporate that in? How do you incorporate that mm. in? And mm. that takes a lot of cleverness. It's not cynical. It says, that, you know, of course you're going to need other things. It's but increasing imaginative. It's increasingly right. I think you're right, right. It's the, use of ima- it's the use of the moral imagination in response to the demands of ideal vision, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't, doesn't leave behind the real human needs that are there. Yeah. And it says, it isn't an all or nothing choice. If you use moral imagination, you can actually hear a messianic mm-hmm. voice and transform. On the other hand, you'll be, you won't be have to sit terrified that people are going to overrun you. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to come back to, Devorah, you had mentioned a tantalizing uh, n- uh, notion that you said you wanted to come back to, this distinction between Lot when he sits in his own house that has a door, um, as opposed to when he sits at the gate of the city um, looking out for people. And you, you, you said you might come back to the notion between the gate of a city and the gate of a house. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks, Sam, for, for, for mentioning that. Um, you know, I was thinking about um, what, uh, what the gate signifies um, in, the, in the Tanakh. And um, very often, the gate is actually um, a place of judgment. So I, I want to I share a, a verse which I came across recently when I, was, when I was looking at these texts because it talks about a poor person at the gate. Um, and I originally read this verse one way, and then I was looking at some commentaries and read it a different way. And I want to talk about those two ways and, and bring them together. So the verse is from Proverbs, uh, Mishle 2222, and it says, Do not rob the, the poor or the destitute or the wretched uh, because he is wretched. Do not crush the poor man at the gate. So when I first read this, I was uh, imagining the poor person at the gate as, um, you know, in line with our story and with numerous other rabbinic texts, um, which uh, talk about um, a story that transpires where a poor person comes and knocks at the gate or calls at the gate and what happens when somebody comes and offers food to that poor person. So that's what I thought it meant, right? The poor person at the gate. In other words, the person who comes to the gate of your courtyard or the door of your house knocks on the door and it's saying, don't crush him, right? Be responsive to him. But then I was looking at commentaries and the commentary said something which I'm I'm sure is actually what the verse means, which is that it's not actually talking about somebody coming and knocking at the door of your courtyard or the door of your house. It's talking about a poor person who comes to the gate of the city, the place where judges would sit in judgment. We're familiar with this, for example, in the book of Ruth. Um, 
And that's probably actually what it means in the Lot story, that when he sits in the gate, uh, it's not just like Abraham sitting in the entrance of his tent to welcome passer, passers-by or to get some breeze and noticing passers-by, but rather that Lot is sitting in the gate because, as the sodomites later accuse him, he is, in fact, a person who gets involved in judgment. And the gate is a, is a place of uh, where, where the elders would meet and do judgment. We know this from the book of Ruth and many other places. So really what this verse is probably saying is that when a poor person comes to judgment, don't crush him, right? Judge him fairly. Um, but it struck me then, and I was wondering about this, and I'd be interested in hearing what you, what you guys think about this. It struck me then that in, in the numerous stories we have in the Talmud where a poor person comes to the gate, uh, but the gate there is the private gate. It's the gate of my home. And is calling upon the person who lives inside to come out and offer them a meal, offer them some bread, perhaps invite them in to sit at the table with them. Um, that perhaps when we read those Talmudic stories, we're being asked to imagine at one and the same time what it means for that kind of intimate encounter between two people, the person who's coming from the outside who's in need, the person who is living inside who has something to offer, Um, juxtaposing that with what's echoing perhaps from the biblical background, what's echoing in the back of our minds, which is that when a person comes to the gate, the person is coming seeking justice. And, and perhaps the text um, is asking us to remember, you know, so often uh, in our communities um, or our communities, our cities, our countries, um, we, we, think of, we think of the people out there, the, the, the thems, the theys, the government, the uh, social welfare agencies. We think of, of um, um, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever it might be. We think of all the things out there which are supposed to be taking care of those in need, which are supposed to be uh, you know, ensuring justice and help for people. Um, but perhaps this juxtaposition, the notion of the, the poor person coming to me at the gate um, is being juxtaposed with the notion of a poor person seeking justice from society to call upon us to remember that actually it's never the they who is charged with taking care of justice, it's actually the I, each and every one uh, of us, that when somebody knocks at our gates, um, it, is, it is I, um, just because that person knocked on my gate, it is I, um, who am enjoined to um, execute the, the justice um, that, um, that the person is seeking, just as if they came to a court, it would be, it would be the court, and, and, and we can not expect anybody uh, else to do that. Once that person knocks on our door or calls out at our gate, um, it becomes my responsibility to, to hear them and to um, act from a, from a place of care and responsibility to share justice with them. I like this um, connection for two reasons. First of all, given given your observation in the text that I brought from Genesis, from Sefer Bereshit, um, that Lot is presented as doing at the gate of the city. We assume he's a judge of the city, because people who sit in the gate of the city are judges of the city, or he's a dignitary in the city. He's presented as doing in the gate of the city what Abraham is presented as doing in the gate of his house, are you looking out for, for, for waferers, looking out for people in need of hospitality? And maybe, and, and, and what you're asking us to do is to do the opposite, to, to, think, to think of our, uh, the entrance to our homes as something like a gate to a city where, where, where we take on the responsibility, of, so to speak, of a, of, of a judge, of a legislator, of a, and, and the calls for a judge to be just and fair and take care of people and welfare. 
that becomes our responsibility at our personal gates at our homes. It made me think also of kind of social contract theory. So the idea in social contract theory is the state, the polity, receives its sovereignty from some sort of tacit agreement of the people we'll throw our lot in together and we'll give up some of our rights in order to create a state where in fact we're protected um, our safety is protected our welfare is protected but one thing we don't tend to relinquish sovereignty over is our private domain we have a we have a private life and we have private property but what happens if you have private property is you become a sovereign you become like a sovereign over your private property and sovereignty comes with responsibilities. So all the responsibilities that Mishlei, that the book of Proverbs and more famously I suppose the book of Deuteronomy throws on to the judge who sits at the gate of the city get, get rebounded onto us. If you're going to have private property that's fine, you can have private property but that comes with the responsibilities, the responsibilities of having your own gate. Right now. I like that connection. And enabling people to have access to that access gate. Access to that gate. So that was the original question of access. I was remembering what you said at the, at the, at the beginning, that um, there's an issue of to what extent will the gate keep me in? Mm. Okay. Um, we talked about ways of wanting to reach out past my own private world because I have responsibilities to, to other people on the other side. Um, I wouldn't want to get trapped in a world in which the poor have to reach us and knock on our private gate in order to see to it that needs are met. Um, that would feel to me like I was being trapped inside by my own gates. I think of us as having to imagine them knocking on our gates all of the time. Mm. Um, there's the individual issue of this particular person knocks on my door and says he's hungry. But for me, it would be a kind of cop-out to, to, to give them money, ignoring the fact that there are, what, 70,000, 80,000 people in New York City who don't have enough to eat. Okay, that, that uh, at the present time, what is it, it's, it's uh, 16 or 18 percent of, of New Yorkers are, are food insecure, is the technical right. phrase. Right, Okay. Um, it wouldn't be enough for me to say, well, if you knock on my door, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run to the door. I don't even have a gate. Mm -hmm. I'll run to the door. I think there's a point in which one has to go out past one's own gate mm -hmm. and say, listen, I, I, I know that there are people who aren't eating out there. I know that there are people who, uh, they're knocking all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's a deafening, deafening sound of people knocking who don't have anything. Mm -hmm. um, the same way we know people in the same, it has to do with money, it has to do with health. You don't say, well, if somebody comes to me and they have a health problem, I'll do what I can. You think so? Are you unaware of the incredible problems that people have? So I want to be concerned not to get ourselves back into the privatization of charity needs anymore. I want to stay focused also on the importance of knowing that there are big questions, that the gate doesn't trap me. So mm -hmm. though, though, I, though I agree with the sentiment, Though I agree with the sentiment, I could push back a little bit to say I do think that the texts here and elsewhere in, in kind of the Jewish canon um, th think of, of uh, proximity as coming along with responsibility. So you have more of a responsibility to your family than to non-family, more of a responsibility to your community, to non-community. I could imagine you have more of a responsibility to the person who physically knocks on your door than you do to a person um, far away. And yet... I think this might, where I, where I agree with you, I think that this might be the, the measure of piety. What does it really mean to be a chassid? Is how good is your hearing? 
um, you, you can hear the cries of the of the stranger, and you try to make sure that your house is built in a way that you're not deaf to that. The pious person hears ever further these concentric circles of responsibility. The pious person hears, you know, the screams of the person right on the edge, and that is a, it is a deafening cry. And I think to to be sensitive to that is a mark of a person's piety. And perhaps you know, kind of in in the inverse of what I was suggesting before, which is that, and, and what Sam was following up on, um, you know, the notion suggested before that that our gate kind of stands in for the gate of the city, yes. um, what, what you're perhaps challenging us to think about is that perhaps enabling ourselves to have a gate that where, where we can hear the cry of that one person in need um, also then allows us to think about more broadly than what needs to happen in the gate of the city. Mm. Right? Letting really that person's that. cry. Right. Yes, yes. Well, our time's uh, up now, so um, thanks so much. This was this was. A lot, lot to think about. Um, I think perhaps next time we might um, look at one of the stories that, that we referred to, uh, one of the many stories in the Talmud where um, a poor person comes to a gate um, and um, is offered food. And that, that was probably an interesting thing to follow up on and, 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 see, and see how these ideas that we introduced today play out. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Drisha V'Chakira, the Drisha Chavruta podcast. To download more of our podcasts and shiurim, subscribe to our iTunes channel or go to www.drisha.org for more online and in-person learning opportunities. Drisha, deep learning, committed lives.